And I think that maybe sometimes as writers, we're so intent on the other people out there and the ones that we're writing for that we forget that the experience uh, is a blessing. It's supposed to be a blessing to us. Mm -hmm. um, and I would just offer to you an excellent writer yourself and, uh, and to the community that you're trying to, uh, uh, to cultivate here. Uh, enjoy the process and accept it as the gift that it is. And try not all the time to think about everybody else out there that might read it. If you write a good sentence that nobody else enjoys, if you enjoy it, then pat yourself on the back. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Alan Levi is a senior songwriter who lives in rural Georgia. Ten years ago this summer, Alan's brother and best friend, Gary Levi, died after a year's struggle with cancer. Alan tells the story of that hard, beautiful year in a book called The Last Sweet Mile, which has just been re-released by Rabbit Room Press. Alan Levi, I am very happy and honored to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Well, thank you. It is my pleasure. I'm honored. So uh, you have just re-released uh, your book, The Last Sweet Mile. Mm -hmm. um, it came out originally, well, it didn't come out 10 years ago. It came out less than 10 years ago because this is the, it's a, it's a you tell your brother Gary's story. Right. And we are coming up on the, the 10th anniversary of your brother Gary's death. Yes. And then you wrote the book a couple of years after that. And now it's being re-released with a new cover. So tell me, about, just give us a quick summary of what's going on, what this book is about, what you were yeah. trying to do. And then I've got a lot of questions for you. Well, thank you. And thank you again for letting me be a part of this, Jonathan. Thank you for reading uh, the book, too. Oh, I love uh, it. It, it, I love it, it would not be... It would not be right to talk about the book without first talking about my brother a bit. Uh, my brother, Gary, was 13 months younger than me. Uh, the two of us were um, members of a family of five children. Mm -hmm. He was my hero, my mentor, my best friend, uh, in some ways business partner. And I think he and I both planned to grow very old together. But back in 2011, uh, he was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, which is a brain cancer. He was very healthy. Uh, for most of the 20 years before that, he had lived out of the country doing missions-related work. Um, but when he was diagnosed, uh, he was home to stay after that. Uh, and at that point, I quit my job as a traveling singer-songwriter uh, to care for Gary. Uh, when he finally passed away in 2012, um, there was just a period of decompression. Uh, we had had a really wonderful year together, but I was very, very tired. Uh, I learned during that year that I didn't want to travel uh, in the future as much as I had in the past with work. So I had a, I had a, a bit of downtime, and I, I have a notoriously poor memory. Uh, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. I really have a very bad memory. And so I thought it would be wise to uh, to write some things about Gary for my own benefit, mm -hmm. but also maybe for the benefit of my family, especially young ones who barely knew their Uncle Gary. Uh, Gary and I are, were are, uh, both never married bachelors without children. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that we were both single all of our lives um, 
did a lot to forge our friendship uh, because yeah. we spent lots of time together when he was home. But uh, I, I set out to write a letter uh, to my family uh, in which I would try to capture some of the memories of Gary's life and um, maybe more importantly, the essence of who he was as a, as a person. And my intent was to make enough copies to pass them out to the family, you know, go to Kinko's or something and be done with it. <laughs> and providentially, uh, Andrew uh, and Jamie Peterson and the kids were at the, uh, the farm one weekend. And he asked what I was working on. And that happened to be what I was working on. So he took a copy of it and uh, we ended up uh, putting it in a form that could be distributed to more people than just the 20 or so in my family. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So in the first chapter or so, you, you spent a lot of time talking about the, the self-doubt that you had to work through to write this at all. You know, as you, and I, I completely understand this. You say you were well aware that it was beyond your power to write anything that could recreate or capture that last year of Gary's life. Right. And yet you said you felt obligated to try. So I, I, I'd love to hear you talk about how did you, knowing that this was above your pay grade. Um, yeah. And I know that the things I want to write about the most seem to be the things that are the hardest to write about. You know, I mean, it's, it's, sometimes it feels like I'm just trying to describe how bright the sun is or how wet water is. I don't know what to say about this. Right. Um, and so I end up writing about something that isn't quite so close to the center of, of who I am, you know. Yeah. Um, but how did you push through and, and, you know, and write this anyway. Yeah. Well, again, I think that uh, the, uh, the real impetus was affection for my brother. Mm -hmm. uh, I felt that his life was one that needed to be memorialized. And I may have uh, started out really in tribute to him more than anything else, but also affection for my family. Uh, so years ago, I wrote a song called Worth Another Try. And it was about exactly what you just described. It was about sitting at the edge of the ocean and trying to write a letter to a friend uh, and capture what that sunset was like. And I tried multiple times, kind of walk up the paper, throw that copy away, try again, try again. And I think that kind of explains what life as a songwriter has been for me and probably for you and many of our friends as writers. We know we're never going to write the, the perfect book, maybe not even the perfect paragraph. <laughs> um, so I think that uh, pushing through or maybe just accepting uh, failure at the outset uh, made it somewhat easy to begin and then just trust that somewhere in, uh, you know, in the words and in what happens between the reader and the page, uh, something of my brother's essence would come through. Uh, but I will say that uh, having written a lot of songs over the years, um, most of which are probably uh, well forgotten. Um, there was some fearlessness that I had already developed mm -hmm. uh, about writing things that I knew were not going to be perfect. I've made a career out, out of four minute failures. <laughs> so this, this was just going to be a longer version of that, of that <laughs> yeah. pursuit. Uh, but I could tell Jonathan early on in the process that it was really good for my heart. And, mm -hmm. uh, there was a friend who has a little house on her property, and that's where I would go to write each day. I'd ride my bike down and uh, sit on her porch and write. And there were so many hours during that process that it was just me and Gary and those memories yeah. where I didn't have to describe anything. I had it in my head, and, and 
uh, was able to live it. Uh, but I did try to describe what I was seeing in my own mind yeah. and just pray, Lord, uh, maybe you can help others make sense of this or, or see what I'm seeing in my head. Yeah. At one point, you you described the process as, as you know, sort of like a, a boys looking through a hole in a in the outfield fence at a baseball game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, just giving a, you know, knowing that they're not getting the full experience, but they're seeing enough to see whatever's on the other side of the fence is pretty great. And, right. and that's, you know, that evokes in us in the reader, a longing that, that maybe that's the best we can hope for as writers to, to evoke a yeah. long, you know, not, not so much to successfully represent or faithfully represent what it is that, that as you said, is in your mind. Uh, maybe right. if it's just to, to give me a longing for something that I can't yeah. quite get a hold of, there's a lot of value in that. You know that 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 might be the best we do. <laughs> really, you know, we've never heard a perfect song. We've never read a perfect sentence. Really, yeah, uh, because everything is processed through a broken apparatus. Uh, but I, I do think that uh, as creative, whether we're doing music, pottery, dance, uh, pick your medium, uh, as followers of Christ, that really is about the best we can do. When I started doing music a long time ago, uh, I had left law practice and was trying to make sense of why that decision, why leave the law world, where it was very easy to set oneself apart and be light, to enter into this other realm where uh, you know, encounters with people would be maybe much more sporadic, that, that sort of thing. But the, the mission statement that I wrote for myself said that I want to write songs that provoke Godward thought. And, and I think in the book, it's the same way, using Gary, obviously, uh, as the focal point. Uh, because to me, he made God and life with God look really good. Yeah. And my hope in writing the book was just to distill some of that into words so that people could read it and taste and yeah. see, you know, yeah. maybe maybe get some idea that there's this really this wonderful reality, often belittled, uh, often criticized, yeah. rightfully so. But it is still a very not a very it is the very best life uh, that we can know. Yeah. So I read the book. So I know what you mean when you say that Gary, you know, made life in God look good uh I, i'm misquoting you forgive me uh but a lot of our listeners will not have read the book so what do you mean when you say gary made uh made the things of god look uh like a like something they're worth pursuing yeah yeah great um again this uh, i'm going to be bouncing up against the limitations of of, of speech and expression here <laughs> um so my brother gary uh he was uh he was a man fully alive. I think we've heard that expression a lot. Is that an Augustinian expression? Maybe a man fully alive. Yeah, but, it's, uh, it, I've I've seen it attributed to one of the church. It wasn't Augustine, but it was one of the church fathers. And then I've also heard that it wasn't really him. But anyway, right, 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 right. right. It's man, still was a man fully alive. Is God's greatest creation is man uh, is a, a person fully alive or something along those lines? There you go. There you go. Uh, so at Gary's memorial service, uh, I described him as a man who loved God, which is, it's a cliche maybe if it's not properly understood. But the point that I made then is that the things that God loved 
Gary loved or mm-hmm. the things God loves, Gary loved. He loved people. He loved beauty. He loved life. He loved laughter. Uh, uh, he, he loved pleasure. Um, he loved truth. He loved God's son. And Gary did that in a way that was very ebullient. He was a radiant personality. Uh, he was not terribly brainy uh, in some sense. Uh, he was dyslexic growing up. He really struggled with that. He did not make good grades in school, uh, but he was a tenacious personality. And when he set his mind to doing something, whether it was cook a meal, uh, carve a bowl, plant his blueberry patch, read to kids, whatever he did, he did it with his full heart. Mm. And and I, I just saw it so many times and over the course of so many years, people were so attracted to Gary mm. in the same way that I think they were attracted to Jesus. Um, he was a radiant person. Um, laughter was, it was a primary part of his speech. Mm-hmm. And it was always sweet laughter. It was not mean-spirited. Uh, uh, Gary was extremely gracious, extremely forgiving, uh, patient. That doesn't mean that he was compromising at all about convictions that he had or things that he believed to be true. Um, but he he loved people in a way that uh, was uh, it was magnetic. Uh, in that way, I think that he made God look good. And his intent, Jonathan, was all, always never to draw attention to himself. Uh, he always wanted to just be the window through which people. Uh, could see in something to the kingdom of God. Yeah. I love the way you talk about his hospitality and his little house across the pond from you. And it's, it's, you yeah. know, I love, I love the thought of a, of a bachelor just welcoming yeah. people into his home and, and serve them on mismatched plates and, and just making a place yeah. where, as you said, they taste and see that the Lord is good. And, and uh, I just, I was so struck by the creativity, by Gary's creativity <laughs> In areas that expanded so far beyond the arts, right. the things we traditionally think of as the arts. Although he's, you know, as you say, he played played the banjo, played the saxophone, so he certainly had his artistic pursuits. But man, it sounds like his those artistic pursuits were a pretty small slice of the pie when it comes to his creative output. Yeah, and amen. Yeah, un- unless unless creative pursuit includes all of those things, mm-hmm. which, which I think. They do. I mean, cooking sure. a meal and setting a yeah. house is an extremely creative exercise. Oh, absolutely. I, I know you, yeah. you know, understand so, that the arts are just a small slice of the pie of what we call right. of, of what's real creativity. Right. One of the things that Gary believed deeply uh, was that the American house is a terribly underutilized uh, gift uh, that God gives us to use in the work of his kingdom. He loved to have people uh, into his home. I'm a little more reclusive myself. I have to really make an effort to do that. Yeah. But many times when I do open my doors now, uh, it's because I remember Gary's example. And and he would make quite a fuss about it. He, he, he would think through, what do I want the evening to look like? And so there would be conversation that he would try to guide in a particular direction, maybe. Uh, yeah. He was unabashed about praying for people, whether they were believers or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, his cooking was good. It was nothing terribly fancy, <laughs> uh, but but there was just such a sense of welcome about my brother's life. His his arms were open, his heart was open, and uh, and and that is a, a lingering 
but but strong uh, remembrance that I have of Gary, uh, and I I try to walk in his footsteps in that regard. Yeah. Huh. Can you talk to me about how his creativity has helped shape your work in the arts? Right. I mean, you you you're a singer songwriter, an author, um, and you just I'd love I'd love to hear you talk about about that how this you know you as you said your brother was not an intellectual he was not a he wasn't a writer um right. and your your creative gifts run a little bit different track yeah well let me start with this um again Gary was my best friend he was a critic when I needed one mm-hmm. But maybe more than anything else, Gary was my biggest fan. Yeah. And he encouraged me um, more than anybody. Mm-hmm. He really believed in what I did. And there were a lot of days when we were together, he knew that I didn't believe in what mm-hmm. I did. Mm-hmm. And so he was always one to encourage me. And uh, I don't think I ever wrote a song that he listened to that he didn't claim was my best one ever. You know, <laughs> he was he was just that kind of person. But I think that what I learned, what I what I continue to carry forward in life, and this affects uh, writing and everything else, was Gary's deep belief in incarnational living. Mm. Okay, so Gary was a missionary, uh, and he he lived in lots of different places because he was single. He could pick up and move on a dime. Mm-hmm. And he might read a magazine article one week and two weeks later be in Peru for a year. Uh, <laughs> he believed in being where people were. And when he finally landed in a place, he engaged with people. He loved to hear their stories. Uh, he loved to mine material that, that, that he could learn from, but also use uh, as a tool for sharing the gospel. Uh, his last tour of duty, uh, five years in Afghanistan. Uh, one of his, uh, I, I guess one of his misgivings about Afghanistan and the work that he was a part of there was that by then the internet was working. Uh, where he lived, the power was very, uh, very unpredictable. Mm-hmm. But he said that among the missionary staff that he worked with there, uh, it bothered him that lots of people were spending so much time on the computer as part of their ministry, rather than being out in the street. Gary was constantly out in the streets. Uh, when he lived in Spain, he spent a lot of time in the bars. When he was in Bosnia, he was trying to, to, to go to where people who had lived through the war were trying to, to, to make sense of life and, and get back on their feet. Uh, this is a long, winding answer to your question about Gary <laughs> and creativity. I trust but, you. But, but he, was, he was a minor in the sense that he was looking for ways to connect with people and to love them in, in Christ's name. And as a songwriter, I have, uh, I've just realized over the years that if I am not out in the community living life, at least for the kind of songs and stories that I want to write, uh, I really don't have anything to tell. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm, I've become pretty, uh, pretty disciplined about getting out of my house and away from the books and the studio and that sort of thing, just so I can engage with people and be incarnational rather than digital. Uh-huh. And where I can interact with people. The stories is and and the, the encounters with people day to day is where material comes from for me. And I can trace that directly back to my brother. I've always loved people. It's not to say that 
I've lived as a hermit or anything, but uh, but I think that he took his cues from Jesus. The uh-huh. fact that Jesus came at a time that was pre-technological, pre-industrial revolution, pre-printing press, all of that meant something to Gary. Huh. And I think that that he understood that to do ministry in the purest, purest maybe sense of the word uh, is is to be close enough to people that you can touch them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even as right, even as a songwriter, I mean, a lot of times I think if, if I'm not writing this song for somebody, really, there's probably not much reason to write it. Hmm. So I kind of write with audience in mind. How will this connect with a group of people when and if I ever get to sing into? Them? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if if uh, the fact that you are writing this for this book for family members instead of America, <laughs> you know, made it possible for you to do it at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it is. It's so helpful to, to know who you're when you can to know who you're writing writing for. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think, again, that has also served me well as a musician. Uh, the following, if, if I could even call it that, of what I do as a musician has been microscopic at best. I mean, microscopic. <laughs> and uh, I mean, now most of the audiences I play for when I play, which is, is not a terrible lot anymore, are probably 50 or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thankfully, I really enjoy that. I like the proximity physically to to a small group of people, and I don't have to use any technology or electricity for that. Hmm. I enjoy that a lot. But but all along, uh, even when I started doing music 25 years ago, uh, I asked myself the question, who is the audience? Mm -hmm. And when we're booking gigs, that's the first question that my sister asks. She does that work for me. Uh, mm-hmm. who is the audience. And there are a lot of times that we'll say that, that Alan will not work. What he does doesn't work in that setting or for that audience. Uh-huh. And so I'm, I'm, I, I try, even as I wrote this book for my family to just keep in mind 20 people. Yeah. And really within, within the 20, there were even a few within that, that I really, really wanted to know their uncle Gary and mm-hmm. what he was about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Andrew Osinga, I, I heard him do a podcast. I don't know who it was with. It may have been with you. Uh, you ever done Andrew? Uh, yeah. he's, he's such a lovely soul. Uh, but he was talking about the songwriting that he does now is largely with his children in mind. Mm-hmm. And I think that his sense of legacy is that when he's gone, when I'm gone, when you're gone, there may just be a handful of people that, that are going to read anything or listen to anything that we did. And, and it sounds like Andrew writes with them in mind, knowing that for at least for a few months after he's gone, uh, his children, maybe his grandchildren uh, will listen to what he does. And I think that as a writer now, uh, I really live with a sense of that going forward. Uh, Maybe for a month or two after I die, uh, my nieces, nephews, great nieces and nephews will be interested. And they tend to be the ones in my mind. when I write, or there are specific friends that I think of yeah. who might listen, uh, or even on the novel that I'm trying my hand at right now, I, there are certain people in my mind uh, when I'm writing uh, that I hope the book might connect with if I finish it. Yeah, I I've told this story at least once in this podcast, but I'll I'll tell it again. I, when I was trying to write that book about Flannery O'Connor, I kept. I mean, I just was. It was going really slow. And uh, and I 
you know, spent a lot of time thinking about everybody else who was more qualified to write that book than I was, all the professors and all that kind of stuff and all the critics. And it was just really making it hard for me to to, to do this. And 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 Andy Osinga, I was talking to him one day and uh telling about what I was, you know, he asked me what 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 I was working on. And and I said, Yeah, I'm 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 writing this book about Flannery O'Connor, and it's really for people who Christian people who think they're supposed to like Flannery O'Connor, but just don't <laughs> Don't and can't don't get her. And Andy was like, "Oh, that's not, that's me. I you know I I never got Flannery O'Connor." And so then I was like, "Okay, I, this book is for Andy Osinga." And oh, every morning right. I woke up and say, "What do I want Andy Osinga to know about Flannery O'Connor?" Right. Oh, that's and brilliant. This project that had, that had lingered on for I don't know twenty months. I knocked out in in a matter of a few weeks just just because I, I wanted Andy to know some things about Flannery O'Connor. So good. That's so good. <laughs> but anyway, we're here to talk about you. Uh, so I, it, late in the book, you acknowledge that in 100 years, nobody's going to remember who Gary is. Nobody's going to mm-hmm. remember who any of the rest of us are in 100 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, and boy, there, there was one sentence that just really hit me. He said, one day somebody's going to say Gary's name and it'll be the last time anybody says Gary Levi and they're not going to know it, but it's the last time anybody's ever going to say Gary Levi and be talking about this, this man. Um, and, and so you acknowledge that, that we're not going to keep these memories alive forever, except mm-hmm. maybe in the new heavens and the new earth. Mm-hmm. And yet you do it anyway. And and you say something along the lines of, We'll try to keep this memory alive for one another for as long as we can. And you're talking to your family there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, man, I, I started thinking about all the the poets, you know, who it was sort of a tradition in in Renaissance poetry and and not just Renaissance poetry, you know, throughout history. that The poet's going to make himself immortal or his beloved immortal or whatever. And, of course, you know, it's true. We are reading some of those poems. Some of those poems, you know, hundreds of years later. So I guess in one sense they survive. You know, they, they were correct uh, that they could achieve some sort of immortality. Um, although who knows how many thousands of those poems we're not reading. You know, but but that I, I mean, the fact that you that you're giving up on the possibility that your writing is going to make anybody immortal, right? <laughs> that's interesting, and you know. Of course, the thing is, Gary's already immortal. <laughs> your, yeah. your book's right. not going to make him immortal. Right. The, right. the life he is continuing to live is pretty independent of your book. So I'd love to talk about that. Yeah. Um, I read a book a few years ago, uh, and I have now read it several times by, I think he's a professor at Boston College named Peter Kreeft. Oh, yeah. He, he's a wonderful writer. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the name of the book was Christianity for Modern Pagans, which is his treatment of the writings of Blaise Pascal. Okay. And in one of the notes that he writes to some of Pascal's writings, he says, how would it change what we do day to day? And maybe for you and me as writers, uh, if we could believe that something we write today might affect someone 300 years in the future. 3,000 miles away. Well, the likelihood of that is probably very small. <laughs> but I think the possibility alone hmm. 
uh, is, is enough to, uh, to give uh, energy for writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is some impetus to do that. But again, I still distill um, what, what I do. And I think this is wise. I think it's rational to the handful of people who I know and who I think might read me, you know, for a mm-hmm. few years after I'm gone, maybe. maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's probably uh, a bit audacious to think. Uh, but to go back to the first question, it's worth another try. There's a story we're trying to tell. And until we tell it perfectly, I think God always wants us to tell it. But two, in the, in the scripture, you know, um, like there's so many stories. I, I, I think of uh, the book of Esther. Mm-hmm. where the thing that saves the day is a book that was written long before <laughs> the king was on the throne. You know, yeah. somebody wrote a book and it had been in hibernation for apparently a really long time. And providentially, God pulls it out at the right moment, puts it in the right hands, and the book saves the day. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, there is always that that potential, maybe on a smaller scale, for things that we would write. Every now and then, I'm sure you pick up a book by some obscure or totally unknown author, and you read something that blesses you yeah. or, or means something to you. And I think that we all kind of write out of that place. Mm. but. Uh, rationality says uh, set your expectations at a at a place that's credible. <laughs> and for me, yeah. that is that you know I'm going to write and it's going to be forgotten pretty quickly. Yeah, but but I but I love your perspective though that doing this work for 50 people in somebody's great room or, right. or in a tent in somebody's backyard is good work. And right. it doesn't have to bring immortality. Again, you, you're getting immortality from somewhere else, yeah. <laughs> not, from, not from these songs, these four-minute yeah. failures that you that you said. Yeah. And you by the way, they don't seem like failures, though, those of us who listen to them. But, of course, I don't know. Maybe you, maybe there's thousands and thousands that none of us have ever heard. I guess there are. There, there, there are. There are. And you would probably be glad you've not had to. <laughs> I, love, I love to write. I know for some, especially songs. So lately I've been doing this thing for the last few months where I write a new song every week and put it up on, on Instagram uh, with the help of a friend who understands technology. Um, but it makes me attentive. So as a single guy without a family, without a populated house, without television, without internet, uh, some of that by choice, some not. Um, writing songs is, uh, it, it's, Kind of the way that I relate to the world a lot, and I wake up looking for things to write about. That's always been the modus operandi mm-hmm. uh, for me. But when I left law practice, a friend, a very wise friend, told me, realizing that I was going to be working in front of people and making my living uh, pretty much based on the applause of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said, "Always remember that the thing that matters most is the applause of the nail scarred." hands. Mm. And I think a recognition uh, of the fact that that is our audience, whether we're playing for nobody or for a a big room full of people. uh, Again, that gives worth to the work that uh, I think many of us try to do, just knowing God's listening. God hears us. I was speaking with a friend of mine recently who just retired from ministry. And he said, "I've, I've had some time to reflect on 25, 35 years in the pastorate and, and in parachurch ministry. And he said, I was uh, reflecting on it one morning and really disappointed and really disheartened mm. by how little 
he had done. And he said it was like God tapped him on the shoulder and just whispered in his ear, I like what you did. Mm-hmm. And I think that for us sometimes who have, uh, you know, faint reward financially or in terms of recognition, uh, it's kind of nice to think that maybe God would tap us on the shoulder and say, uh, Jonathan, it may not have made a real big splash, but I want you to know I really like what you did. <laughs> and uh, I think my brother Gary lived with an awareness of that, that God really, really enjoyed him and liked what he did with all of his failures, with all of his missteps, with all of his limitations. I think Gary lived with the sense that he was a well-beloved child. Mm-hmm. Wow. You, uh, at one point, talk about writing for one or less <laughs> or, or performing, uh, playing music for one or less. Um, I think it's a line from one of your songs, maybe. Yeah. What are you talking about? Exactly what I was just saying. Uh, I mean, my, my favorite thing still to do as a musician uh, is is to sit on my porch and play songs, mm. write songs, play old ones sometimes. Um, I get really, really nervous in front of people. I disguise it pretty well, but I do not like to be in front of people. I don't think I ever have, which probably calls into question my sanity for choosing the the career path that yeah. I've been on. Lawyers have to be in front of people. As a judge, <laughs> I was in front of people. As a singer-songwriter, I'm in front of people. I do not like to be in front of people, but I love to be creative. I love to sing. I love the sound of music. And uh, my favorite thing still to do is to be by myself and uh, and to offer up, you know, whatever happens at the moment. Yeah. Uh, and I, th- I think, again, for me, I think that has served me well, because by any any market metric, I have been at best a disappointment and maybe even uh, an abject failure. But but I have lived with a keen sense that one day God's going to pull out all the songs and all the performances and there is the prospect that he'll say, well done. I know you didn't get a lot of uh, appreciation or applause or anything or money, but I like what you did. Mm. Was there a process by which you decided that's enough? Did you have to come to that or did you, was that just sort of, you understood that? Early on. I mean, you say uh, that's enough. That being law or something. Or- no, no. I, I mean that. I mean, for for God to say the, the you said there, there's a possibility that God's going to say, "Well done," and not a lot of recognition from anybody else. How, <laughs> can, can you put words around how you got to that point? Because not everybody yeah. gets to that point. Yeah. I dare say, almost nobody gets to that point. Yeah. And, and believe me, I, I still wrestle with it. Sure. But and I will say this, in all honesty, it was forced upon me. <laughs> you know, it was either it was either accept that that would have to be enough or quit. Most people quit. I mean, I, yeah, I knew I was not supposed to quit. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, I, there is so much joy. You know, when it happens, I mean, if there's a room of 25 people, uh, you can you can feel it when it happens. I mean, you just know something really beautiful is is taking place in this room. My favorite thing ever to do, and and this is almost exclusively what I do now, is play concerts at my house. (laughs) My piano player comes up. I have somebody 
cater or cook a meal, whatever. And then, uh, and I'll kind of select 25 to 35 people. And I have control over the room. <laughs> uh, it's conversational. Yeah. I usually read selections that mean a lot to me or that I might be enjoying at the moment. Uh, and there is something that is really glorious uh, about those moments. There's no financial pressure on me. So I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of uh, out of the mainstream in that sense. I don't have to worry much about that. Uh-huh. Uh, but when those nights go well, honestly, I wouldn't trade places with Bruce Springsteen <laughs> uh, because there's just something so holy about a few people with tear drenched faces and a truth that is raining down on us at the moment. And they tend to be in songs that are not, you know, overtly religious or anything. Mm-hmm. But, um, but to answer your question, it was hard fought, honestly, Jonathan, and I still wrestle with it. Sure, I wish I could play in front of big groups. Sure, I wish that the sound was good every night. Sure, I wish that people listened to these little darlings that I write <laughs> and send out into the world. I wish they uh, liked them. But, um, but I, I, would, I would have to say, I, I think this is a true assessment that I really have made peace with just doing what I do and mm. being really grateful for it. Yeah. Well, you, I'd love for you to tell a story about a night that you did play for a bigger audience. Mm-hmm. And that was a, you tell a story in your book about a, a gala performance you played at a, at a theater there in Columbus, Georgia. Yeah. And it was shortly after Gary had been diagnosed. Yeah. So Columbus is where I grew up. It's where I practiced law. It's where I went to school. I've still mm-hmm. got lots of significant friendships there and know a lot of people and, and love the community. Uh, so when Gary was diagnosed, it was late July of 2011. And it was surreal in the sense that time stood still. Emotions just came up that I didn't know existed inside me. Uh, It was kind of like walking through a fog, but it was a really sweet fog. Hmm. And as I think I mentioned in the book, I think we all knew as a family, uh, Gary's going to die. Yeah. We we prayed that he would be healed. But I think we all kind of knew from the outset. We're going to lose uh, Gary, our brother, our son, our uncle, whatever. And uh, so I had had agreed to play at this function. The governor of Georgia was going to be there. The Springer Opera House is the state theater of Georgia. It's really been the the site of some celebrated performances. Mm -hmm. And I've been on that stage a number of times and love the venue and was really excited about, about it. But I went to the director and I said, I don't think I can do this. I just don't have the emotional capacity to be present. And uh, he's a really big hearted soul, a guy named Paul Pierce. And Paul said, Alan, if you come out and just play one song on your guitar by yourself, that'll be enough. And I said, well, I will think about it. And uh, went back and talked to Gary and Gary really leaned on me to do it. And so for him, I did it. Uh, And so the room, I don't know, maybe whole seven, 800 people, maybe 900, I don't remember, but it was a full house, obviously. And not for me, but for the governor, mostly. And um, so I probably knew 80% of the people in the audience. Mm-hmm. And many of them knew and adored my brother. And so I was playing to a very sympathetic group. And uh, most of the songs that I did that night were things that we had already planned on. They were about Columbus. They were about this and that. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the end of the evening, I had written a story and a song with Gary in mind. And he was sitting in the balcony on the front row. I knew where he was. I couldn't see him because of the lights, but I knew where he was. And so I told the story about two brothers and sang a song. And I I can't even begin to describe it. But uh, knowing he was there and that that our hearts kind of connected across the space with a bunch of other hearts that connected in that space. Uh, I don't know, there was just something unforgettable about it to me. and Gary enjoyed it immensely. <laughs> and at the end of the night, I was real glad that I had done it. <laughs> um, and thankfully, we we got we got it on tape. It doesn't capture what happened, but <laughs> yeah. there's, there's at least a specter of it, uh, specter of it in there. But again, he was my greatest fan. <laughs> and if, if, it, if it had been a total mess, he would have told me that's the best song you've ever. Done. <laughs> well, because that's where he was. One thing I love about that story, though, is I feel like it's such a picture of it's sort of a, a concentration of everything you've been telling me about what your work as a songwriter and as a writer is about. And that is I am having a conversation with one person, maybe myself, maybe just me and God, maybe, you know, the 20, 20 members of my family. But that's what right. I, I'm talking. This is the, it's that conversation. And anybody who wants to be invited in that conversation is welcome. Nice. And yeah. <laughs> but but the conversation is worth something because it's between yeah. you and somebody you love. Amen. So Jonathan, if I if I had finished the book and no one had ever seen it, it was absolutely right. It was absolutely worth every second uh that I put into it. And I do think that 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 if God had spoken to me audibly, he would have said at the end of that exercise, Alan, this was all a gift for you. And I think that maybe sometimes as writers, we're so intent on the other people out there and the ones that we're writing for, that we forget that the experience uh, is a blessing. It's supposed to be a blessing to us. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would just offer to you an excellent writer yourself, and uh, and to the community that you're trying to uh, uh, to cultivate here, uh, enjoy the process and accept it as the gift that it is, and try not all the time to think about everybody else out there that might read it. If you write a good sentence that nobody else enjoys, if you enjoy it, then pat yourself on the back and you know and celebrate. That's, that's a good word. Um, you so this book is ten years old. You haven't read it since you wrote it. Right. It when it got re-released, you didn't read through it again. I you did. were telling me this before we uh before we um started recording. But you're gonna read it someday. Lord willing. Lord willing. I uh, I have this uh this ceremony of sort uh in my mind that when I'm an older man, I'm 66 now. I'm I'm thinking I've got maybe 15 years before I, I formally recognize myself as a genuinely old man. <laughs> but uh, I, I envision that I will get some of Gary's books with his his scratchy handwriting. I'll pull out some of his old sermon notes. I'll get some family pictures and maybe spend a week in that space 
And then uh, one evening I will sit down and uh, there will be a, a lamp and at the edge of my sofa where I typically read and I'll pour a glass of port and I'll say a prayer and maybe read something from Doug McKelvey's uh, beautiful every moment holy about yeah. starting a book or a purposeful gathering. And I will read the book and I might just cry myself into extinction, you know, <laughs> because I know I, I, I know that it was written with tenderness. And uh, and some of the, the passages of the book were written in real time. Mm-hmm. And I will be the only one who will be able to go and sit in the specific chair on the third floor of the, the medical center in Columbus, Georgia, and remember those moments or remember reaching across the beds and holding hands yeah. or those things. And so there's a part of me as an artist that wants to say, go back and read the book again to fix all of the broken parts in it. I'm sure that there is just mess after mess in the book. But there's another part of me that very selfishly wants to preserve that experience for one glorious moment. Uh, and if all goes well after I read the book, I won't be too far away from going to join Gary and those who have gone before us. Yeah. I think it was John Prine, and I'm paraphrasing. He said that sometimes the, the things you write, it turns out they're for the, for the older you. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm putting a stake in the ground because I'm going to need this later. You don't know it. Right. Sounds like you did know it when you wrote it. But but a lot of times we don't know that, that our real audience is older, the older yeah. version of us. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I found something the other day. I was in my studio, and uh, I was trying to find an old song that I had written a long time ago. And I've been through so many different recording formats. Now, I started on cassette tape and then reel-to-reel <laughs> tape and then ADAT. And, you know, there's been so many iterations of that process uh, that it's hard to keep up with where things are. And I found a hard drive and I started listening to it. There were probably 30 songs on there that that I had I didn't remember writing them. Hmm. Uh, but But when I heard them, it just brought to life the inspiration for the song, the, the, the people who were maybe peripheral to the song. And uh, it was the most delightful experience. And I almost wonder if that's not what uh, at least part of heaven is going to be like. You know, <laughs> it resurrects those moments, uh, you know, and, and we get to delight in them again. Uh, but the book, I'm sure it will be, I'm sure I'm going to laugh. <laughs> I talk some stories about laughing with Gary. That was my favorite thing about him, and it's the thing I miss most about his company. Uh, but I'm sure too that uh, reliving those awful moments of having to wrestle with the reality that I'm going to live in the world without him anymore uh, will all just come back to life. I hope in a beautiful way, and I think I think that's what it's going to be. Yeah, you you said in a few places in this book that that was the best year of your life, the cancer year. Well, it was. it was the it last was. sweet mile. Yeah, it, it, it was that. It was hard for sure, you know. And uh, uh, we 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 grieved uh, a lot, but it was maybe the only time in my adult life that I had focus. Hmm. There was only one thing that mattered to me. At the end of the day, if I could say I loved Gary well today because he was my 24-7 job for exactly 365 days. Wow. Uh, if at the end of the day I could say I served him well, then to me that was a good day. 
if we never left the house, but I had served him well, it was a good day. And I hope I, I hope I can carry that. I hope I am carrying that. I hope you and our friends are carrying that as an ethic for everyday life. Mm-hmm. If we can say at the end of the day, I didn't save the world, <laughs> but I love the people who are right here around me. I really loved them well. Then I think God's going to say, I like what you did. And that'll be enough. Yeah. Well, uh, Alan, you, you honored your brother. And you uh, blessed me and everybody who reads his story. So thank you for that. And uh, Lord bless you. You too, Jonathan. Thanks so much. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co. 